0: Hi, and welcome back to the new rules of business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm
1: Lindsay Kaplan. And we're the co-founders of Chief, the most powerful community of senior executive women.
0: On this podcast, we challenge preconceived notions of leadership. And
1: Carolyn, this is our last episode of the season.
0: The last one. It's flew by. Mm -hmm. And we've covered such incredible ground this season, including topics like ageism in the workplace, male allyship, the value of neurodiversity in leadership, and the long challenging road to gender parity in the C-suite. We also talked to some dynamic leaders like Olympian Allison Felix
1: about the Black maternal health crisis, LFS CEO and founder Sally Krawcheck about career transitions, and Moms First founder Reshma Sujani about the ongoing childcare crisis and its impact on business, just to name drop a few.
0: And I think we also reflected on a big lesson that we learned this year about how what got us here won't get us. There. And this is a lesson I think we've both learned throughout our leadership journey as co founders of Chief. We can't rest on past successes and we must continue to reevaluate and adjust how we operate in order to reach even higher and newer goals.
1: Absolutely. And as we build a new era of leaders who, on top of running sustainable businesses, are being asked to step up and do so much more, we need to continue writing the new rules for business.
0: I see what you did there. We need some new rules of business, huh? (laughs)
1: Yeah, you get it. So this week, we're looking back at a few of our favorite lessons learned from this season's guests.
0: First up, we have Reshma Sujani. She is the founder and CEO of Moms First, formerly known as the Marshall Plan for Moms. And she wrote the bestseller, Pay Up, The Future of Women in Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. And she started Girls Who Code. We asked her if companies were regressing in how they treat employees who are parents.
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like we're at a standstill at best. And every moment that we remain in a standstill is detrimental to women and families. You know, the crisis that was affecting women in the workforce, it didn't just start and end with the pandemic, right? We're going to feel the effects of the pandemic for generations. And as a nation, even though we had almost like a gift to really see how broken the structure of care is, As a nation, we're still failing to address the underlying issues that have been limiting, you know, women's advancement for decades. And in fact, what's ironic is like there's a push to return to a status quo that was never working, you know, for women or quite frankly, any marginalized people. When we talk about this at Moms First, you know, there's really two factors that are exacerbating, you know, these problems and setting women back even further. The first one is the worsening child care crisis. You know, 40 percent of parents are in debt because of the cost of child care. Most Americans can't find childcare, it's not available or affordable for them. And we're failing to have transformative action in the implementation of flexible and remote work, which we know really kind of is a lifeline for so many moms, especially in those early years when your kids are young and you're trying to balance doing both. So like our inability to solve these problems are having huge kind of consequences for, you know, women's security, for business and for our economy. It's
1: funny. I was at a women's event about a year ago, and there was a CEO of a major bank at this event. And I'm not going to name names, but a very famous banking CEO. And he said, I hate working on Zoom. I want everybody back in the office. And I know it's better for moms. I know women like it more to work from home. And we'll figure that out. We'll, We'll figure that out. And he kind of waved it off. Is anybody figuring this out? Or is it just kind of like, we want to go
2: back to the office and you'll figure it out. I think here's the thing. There's a real big push to really go back to what they know, even though that the data is showing them something different. Someone said this to me, like, language is important. If you notice, a lot of those CEOs talk about it in terms of productivity. And productivity is really just butts in the seats. We should be talking about it in terms of effectiveness. No one can say, well, the moms that have been working remotely haven't produced the same amount or, if more, widgets than the guy that's been in the office every day. We know that that is actually not true. So I think that there's a continued push by some of these big CEOs. And let's be honest, it's all about commercial real estate. That's what this is about. It's not about productivity. It's not about the stock market. It's not about, you know, collaboration. It's it's about commercial real estate. I think there is a revolt happening, you know, with workers. And you see this every time people change the goalpost. Like, people are protesting, you know what I mean? And they're pushing back. So I think at the end of the day, Remote work flexibility, it's here to stay. And I wish people would just accept that. And like, let's just have a conversation about design rather than are we going back to work or not going back to work. But there's definitely a resistance and we just have to push back against it.
1: Yeah, I read women are 25% more likely to take a job if it's remote. That's a big number, and I think it absolutely has to do with not just commuting, not just the comfort of home, the code switching that happens in the office, but all of that caregiving, you know, all of that time spent away and all of the flexibility we're losing as
2: parents. Yeah. Silicon Valley has done this for a long time because engineers have been taking advantage of remote work for a long time. And so they know that to keep the best the brightest, you got to offer flexibility. So it's interesting about who is being asked to come back and who isn't. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that those tech
1: jobs are often men, right? They're not often the moms. Yeah. Actually, Chief just did a study that showed that there is a lot more bias. Surprise, surprise, that men view working moms as less dedicated to their jobs than working dads. So there's a lot of stereotype and bias associated with parenting as well.
2: Absolutely. Moms make 58 cents on every dollar made by a dad.
1: Ugh. That number is painful. And I'm sure the breakdown is even worse when you look at people with intersectional identities as well. Absolutely. So your advocacy focuses on women at work as parents, but we know that's only half the equation. So what do we risk when we focus that conversation just on mothers? And how do we help address the gender gap that comes with parenting?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, when I started Marshall Plan for Moms, which is now Moms First, people always were like, what about the dads? What about the dads? And I used to say, you know, when I first started Girls Who Code, people would say to me, what about the boys? Can't you just name it kids who code? And I would say, no, this is about focus, not exclusion. The reality is less than 20% of the technology workforce is women. So we gotta call it Girls Who Code. Similarly here, two thirds of the caregiving work is done by moms. Moms make 50 cents for every dollar. Dads get a premium for doing caregiving work. So it's not about caregiving work. It's about who's doing the caregiving work. Again, it's about focus, not exclusion. And so by saying moms, it forces us to ask the question, why have we as a society treated motherhood differently than fatherhood? And what is that about? Focus, not exclusion. We have to talk about the world as it is today and not where we want it to be. But be very clear that like where we want to go. And here's the thing. People always are like, what do you do about the dance? I'm like, they're not my problem. They want what I want. You know, the first seven-figure checks were given to me by men who had single moms who saw this. You know, when I talked to dads, and when dads during the pandemic got to, you know, take Johnny to school and pack the lunch and go to Little League, and guess what? That meant that their diabetes was reduced. Their level of heart attacks were reduced. They lived longer. They were happier. But we live in a society that gaslights men for caregiving, We've heard this all the time. I know I have friends who are dads who took paid leave and and their boss would be like, well, what are you doing? Why do you need that? So there's a culture, you know, that is at odds with parenting that is done by both genders. You know, and so, like, we have to really push against that. And I think the way that you do that is you build for the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable in a workforce right now is a woman of color, a single mom. She is the most vulnerable. So if you design for the most vulnerable, if I build a workplace that basically supports Black mothers, I will support everybody. And that's how we have to think about how we design workplaces. We design them for the most vulnerable.
1: I love the concept that we must design the workplace for the most vulnerable.
0: Yeah. To me, this concept means a well-designed workplace will support the success of those who are historically pushed to the margins.
1: And speaking of designing a system that works for the most vulnerable, this is something you talked about with Allison Felix, the Olympian and
0: founder of footwear brand, Seiche. She's a huge advocate for maternal health. You might remember that she took a stand against her former shoe sponsor Nike for their lack of maternal protections. And in turn, she was left without sneakers to race in the Olympics. So she designed her own shoe. And thus, her brand, Seish, was born. And I have to plug the fact that we have a Chief and Seish collab
1: (laughs) and our own sneaker that we collaborated on and partnered on with Seish. So now Alison is the founder of her own company and she has been the change
0: she wants to see in the footwear space. I asked her about black maternal health and how
3: it impacts women in the C-suite pipeline. I think being a small company, it allowed us to really listen to the team early on and just really even chat about some of these things as we're forming our policies. So we did that. We just came together and we said like, well, what would an amazing policy look like for you? Like what would make you feel like you could be yourself, that you could come back to the work that you love in the way that you want to? And so we came up with four months with a month of hybrid offering pre and postpartum services mental health resources, and just allowing women to take the time to transition as they see fit. I even feel like, I want to do more, you know, we don't have all of the resources to be able to do that. But I think as we grow, this is something that we're committed to and, and committed to continuing to listen and to offer something that women can really feel good about.
0: If you had to ask that you could send to other big companies around policies you wish that would change, what do you think is the biggest thing that you would hope every company implements for its employees?
3: Family leave with mental health services is huge. I mean, like a real great amount of time where you don't feel the need to rush back, that where you don't feel the need that you are still trying to, you know, come to grips and terms with being a parent. And so at the same time, I understand that that's hard. You know, I understand that it's difficult to not have your employee's For that amount of time. And so I think it's really listening to what makes women feel seen and heard and connected to their work while they're away and what level they're comfortable with. But I think it's just better leave policies. Mm. For sure.
0: And I think it's so important to also connect some of this advocacy and some of these policies, particularly around like Black maternal health with the larger business picture and how this can actually, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's actually good for business as well. There's only 5% of C-suite leaders who identify as Black women. So how do you think about that connection of supporting Black parents through pregnancy and what that can actually do to help build the C-suite pipeline.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing in supporting Black women giving birth and families is that they're alive, you know, that they're alive to to be able to work and to be in these businesses. So I think that's huge. Um, I think that just the education piece of it is enormous. And I would love to see that tied into whether it's insurance or the healthcare system in some way, like in my situation, when I found out I had preeclampsia, I didn't even know to the extent of like what that meant, you know, and at that point it's too late, you know, it's an emergency and there's no time for someone to educate you. But I would love to see a piece of this around that because I think, you know, not only just women being alive to be able to do this work, but families being able to continue to be together so that we can thrive to do this work and also create children who in the end can do the same.
1: Less than 5% of C-suite leaders identify as Black women. So supporting Black women throughout their career journeys, especially if they become parents, will help to make sure that women are able to follow their ambitions to the top.
0: That's why this season we also took a look at some of the research Chief conducted in partnership with IBM about the barriers women face as they work their way up in their careers. This research included a global survey of more than 2,500 organizations, along with qualitative insights from our chief members.
1: That leaky pipeline to the C suite is more destructive than we even knew. If you look at the percentage of women in roles from senior manager all the way up to VP, you'll see that the number of drop offs have gotten worse since the pandemic.
0: I sat down with Salima Lin, IBM Consulting's vice president and senior partner of strategy, transformation, and thought leadership. She is a chief member and a fellow author of our study.
4: Before we get into the messy middle, per se, maybe it's important to understand the pipeline in general and what we call the optimism paradox. Mm. So this confidence that change is imminent Mm. has fueled, I think, one of the most curious findings for 2023. Mm. The study respondents told us that gender equity felt closer than it ever has been. In fact, respondents said that they expect that it might take only a decade to see equal numbers of men and women in leadership roles in their industry compared to 54 years, just four years ago. Basically, four years ago in 2019, we did our first women in leadership study. And we found that there were many organizations trying to close this persistent gender gap, but the progress had stalled. And so we asked respondents at the time, how many years do you think it would take before your organizations would have an equal number of women and men in leadership roles? And Carolyn, they said it would take their organizations 54 years. Okay, so Mm. over half a century to Mm -hmm. get to a point of gender equity. And while things have improved since then, the big question that we're trying to answer, which is perception does outpace the pipeline. And we do need to be creative and bold about ways to change that.
0: Even then, perception is outpacing reality because I think a lot of the research, when you actually look at it, it's a lot longer than 54 years that a lot of research is saying, this is how long it's going to take to actually get there. Definitely interesting thing that That perception has gotten even smaller in this study, but even in the 54 years, I think there was still a outpace of perception versus reality.
4: Absolutely. And it's interesting. I'm a half glass full kind of lady. You know, I love the optimism, but the optimism here, the paradox we're seeing, it's dangerous, right? Because when you think things are going well, and they really aren't, then you Mm -hmm. don't take the right set of actions, quick enough to address it, and it just gets worse. And so, it actually can be quite dangerous. Yeah. Now, the messy middle. There are just not enough women, Carolyn, that are moving up the pipeline. So think mm-hmm. director, think VP, think even senior manager type roles. There's just not enough of them. And so this cliche that the glass ceiling it just really isn't just a C-suite phenomenon, right? It mm-hmm. starts much earlier with the first opportunities for promotion to senior leadership roles. This messy middle, unless we take action and we take it quickly, we'll never reach parity. In fact, this middle is, the gap is growing
2: mm. despite
4: the optimism, mm-hmm. right? And that's why if it's growing, it's never going to reach parity. Yeah. And that's why these actions, the systematic actions
0: we talked about and doing them, quickly are they're really important. Yeah, for sure. So from 2019 to 2023, the perception of how long it's going to take moved from 54 years to 10 years, even though in this messy middle, it's actually gotten worse.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's gotten worse. It's, it, we will never get to parity unless we yeah. do something different.
0: Yeah. You don't find that level of optimism in too many places these days, but apparently there's a misaligned optimism happening right now for gender equity, for sure.
4: Yeah, no, for sure. I think a lot of it also is because the pandemic did shed a light. Let's be real. It did shed a light on the challenges that women face. And so you got a lot more media coverage. Mm -hmm. You had a lot more companies say, oh, wow, to be competitive, we're going to need to offer some of these programs like flexible work hours or Mm -hmm. better care facilities. And in fact, both women and men in the survey believe that women have an equal shot at reaching the highest levels of leadership. So all of this contributed to that optimism that we see. Mm -hmm. But that's why I started by saying it's dangerous because Unless we realize that we have this messy middle, that the gap is growing, that it's actually not going to be a decade. It's going to be in aggregate more like three decades Mm -hmm. before we get to parity. But that middle, we're never going to get there unless we act quickly. And so we've got to acknowledge that.
1: I love how Salima calls out the misaligned optimism that many people have about gender equity, while making it clear that we still have a long way to go before we reach parity.
0: I agree. Now, of course, we couldn't have all of these amazing guests this season without asking them to share the best and worst leadership advice they've received.
1: And my favorite came from Dr. Bill Kapfer. He's the head of global supplier diversity at Morgan Chase, and he spoke to us this season about male allyship.
4: probably the worst piece of leadership advice I received was just ignore it. Mm. And if I had to have the best leadership advice is getting involved, raising your hand, and stirring it up is your responsibility and it's the part of the rent that you pay for your privilege to live on this earth.
1: Bill, that's a really, really good piece of leadership advice. I'm going to steal it. (laughs) It's
4: all yours. At the end of the day, There is a rent that we pay, and it can take many forms. But in particular, this work that we do, because it comes from the heart, and it comes from we who have walked in those shoes, and who have been part of those conversations, and who have been in those meetings, it's our
1: responsibility. I love that. Let's use our privilege to speak and advocate for others. And to quote you, stir things up.
0: And a big thank you to all of our guests this season and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We hope you've learned as much as we did on this journey.
1: And it's definitely a journey. We are always learning and redefining ourselves, Carolyn and I, as leaders, as allies. And we know what got us here won't get us there.
0: As Bill Kapfer says, stir things up. Stir it up. We won't reach gender equity by operating with business as usual. That's right.
1: Stir it up. So that is all for the season. Thank you so much for listening. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following the new rules of business on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to learn more about Chief, just head to our website, chief.com.
0: Chief is the most powerful community for senior executive women designed to create meaningful connections with fellow executive leaders that'll unlock transformative outcomes for your career. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, and Mesa Melton at Chief, and to our entire production team, Pod People. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers.
1: And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks again for listening. we can't let you go without sharing another bad piece of advice. Because Carolyn, you love bad advice.
0: I think you learn the most from the bad things
3: that you sometimes (laughs) see, hear, and do. You're not wrong. Play the clip. The worst. (laughs) I'm like, what is the worst advice? I would say, I don't even know. It wasn't really advice, but it was a comment that was made kind of early on with the idea of our company. And I think, I think we were probably in a pitch meeting where this came out. And the response was like, do you think the market is big enough? I was like, you mean women? Like, <laughs> you mean like half of the population? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> being questioned. Generally all need footwear? Yeah. I think it's a pretty big pot that we're working with. <laughs>